Good morning and welcome on this beautiful Sunday morning. God has blessed us with and we're grateful for your presence here this morning and uh, glad that we can come together, worship together here today and uh, to be able to delight in the person of God, share of his goodness with others and uh, looking forward to doing that even today in the message of the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. So welcome and uh, we're glad that you could take time to be here and uh, looking forward to the morning ahead. There are a lot of things inside of our, our bulletin. Uh, I know sometimes we can get inundated with information, and uh, but I hope that as you take this home with you, even today, uh, that you'll take a moment, look at it. There are several details in here about some upcoming events, and in just a little bit, uh, our uh, children's director is going to come and fill you in on uh, one event that's coming up here pretty soon, and uh, so I hope that uh, you will take a moment. There are some activities tonight. Uh, there are some things happening even this morning, uh, and uh, so looking forward to uh, being able to share in some of these different uh, venues and opportunities. Coming up later uh, in uh, the few weeks from now, March the 5th, we are planning a baptismal service, and we have some individuals that are asking to be baptized. And if that's something that you have never done and you'd like information about that, and uh, you'd like to talk with someone, Kelly O'Rear be more than happy to fill you in on uh, what that is about, uh, walk with you through that and uh, what that means. Uh, but uh, if you are interested, his information is there in the bulletin and uh, right above the section there on our missionaries. And so uh, make sure that you take note of that, even if you would this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Sandy to come and uh, she's going to share with us a couple announcements from our children's ministry, as well as some of the opportunities for even our students here. Yes. Good morning. Um, I'm sure that over the past few weeks you've seen some information about the Grand Prix that our Awana group has coming up. Um, we would like to invite all of you to come out to this event. You don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be a family member. You don't have to be part of Awana, but you are our church family. And so we want to invite you to come be a part of this, um, support our kids. They've been working on designing cars for several weeks now, um, decorating them. And then on this Saturday, they're going to race them. And it's just a really fun event. Um, another reason that we would love for you to come out is that Steve Gilmore and our Alaska missions teams are going to be selling concessions, and it's a great way to support the teams. Um, you can come for a snack or an early dinner and just enjoy some fun. So the information is that it's this coming Saturday. Um, it's from 3.30 to 6. You can pop in anytime um, and just Come talk with us, chat with us, and uh, find out what the Alaska Missions teams are doing as well. If you're not able to come, there are other ways to support the Alaska teams, um, and so we'll get you connected in that way, other ways to donate and things like that. Um, but we'd love to see you there. It's going to be at the Morris Hill Baptist Church Gymnasium, and again, it's this coming Saturday from 3.30 to 6, and so we'll hope to see you. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, you'll notice in the bulletin there, there is a section that talks about Beyond Borders, and uh, that's where you'll find our emphasis of the Missionary of the Week, Lorraine Itterman, so you can be in prayer for her. But uh, also, you'll notice that uh, we have a couple of uh, missionaries that are going to be heading out, and uh, Caitlin Pollock returning to Kenya, and also David Prairie, who's going to be 
uh, conducting a teaching ministry over in India. I'd like for uh, David and even Brandy, if she's here with him, to come up and also for Caitlin. I've asked her father, Matt, to come and uh, just as a way of encouraging our hearts to be reminded to pray for them and uh, to be encouraged in what God is doing through them and uh, take some time here this morning to gather our hearts in appreciation for what God is doing through them in serving and uh, had a great update from uh, Caitlin. Looking forward to hearing about David's trip uh, to India and uh, just wanted to make sure that we presented them this morning. We've uh, The Dicks who are in town, uh, they're here, uh, uh, have a wedding tomorrow. There's some others that are going to be heading back to the field and we'll try to make sure that we do this as well before they leave. But uh, just a word of reminder to us. And so I'd ask, and if you would, let's stand together with them and dedicate this time of our service, but also thinking about them and what God is doing through them and what our church's responsibility to them is as we go before them in prayer, but also financially as we support them with words of encouragement and thinking about our participation in these that serve as missionaries from our church. Father, grateful for this morning, grateful that we can gather in this place and grateful for these. I thank you for David. Thank you for Caitlin. I thank you for the work that they are invested in Lord, using the skills, the gifts, the abilities they have, but Lord, also uh, being opportunity, giving, give, being given these opportunities to uh, really uh, share the love of Christ, to demonstrate the, the model of the gospel at work. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bless them. I pray for Caitlin and the Encouragement Children's Home and those lives that are so dependent upon safety and finding a sense of stability in a a world that for those young years has really presented nothing but chaos and hurt. Lord, I thank you for David's ministry in India as he has been able to reach into the hearts and minds of some individuals that are desiring to grow in their understanding of faith and be able to then be used by you in a country that right now has really started to close itself off from the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you just continue to open doors of opportunity. Lord, I pray that we as a church would also realize what is in front of us and that we would be mindful of those people that are around us, people who need to hear the gospel, to be exposed to the gospel, who see the gospel at life in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just truly breathe through us the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, bless our time this morning. We pray for those that are not able to be here. Uh, Lord, many that are struggling physically, but also we pray for those that are just in different situations of life. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to do a work through our church, through one another. And Lord, just grateful for what you're doing. Lord, bless now we pray. And may you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you. Good morning, church. My name is Kelly O'Rear, and I am the discipleship pastor here. Fred and Tina are in North Carolina celebrating the birth of a new grandbaby boy. So uh, we rejoice with them. And um, right now, what I would like to do is let's just kind of prepare our hearts. It's so easy to just come rushing into an auditorium and, okay, we're going to start singing. So let's prepare our hearts. So if you would, let's bow our heads. I want you mentally to just kind of draw a circle around yourself. Because there's nobody else in this auditorium, just you and the Lord. Take a deep breath. In your own heart, 
take a moment to just praise the Lord for who he is. Pick an attribute and praise him. As we continue to prepare our hearts, is there any sin that needs to be confessed, brought to the cross? Remember the gospel and that from the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He bore the wrath in our place for our sin. As we enter this time of worship, let's remind ourselves of the gospel, of our identity in Christ. Let's bring anything to him, whether it's anxiousness, whether it's a lack of faith, a sharp tongue. And look on the cross and believe his sufficiency. And now would you pray for our time together as we gather as the blood-bought church minister to us in this time of worship as we praise and worship as the word is opened. I'm sure many of you have heard about rumors that there are revivals awakening. A friend of mine texted me this week and said, I'm driving to Asbury. I want to see what's going on there. And he texted me yesterday. He said, God's moving. There's something special about this. And Time will tell, but let's not pray for revival and then doubt because it doesn't look like what we expected. God is moving among his people through his word, through his spirit, through the furtherance of the gospel. Pray that he will meet with us here in a special way. Lord, the king is in the room. You're here. You're with us. We want to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. So give us great joy as we sing afresh these truths of who you are and as you invite us to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering in Jesus' name to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now, Lord, the worship doesn't stop because the music has ended, but the worship continues now as our pastor comes and opens the word. We pray your hand on him, that you would bless both the speaking and the hearing. Give us receptive hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Great singing this morning. And uh, the, the nourishment of the gospel is something that always touches upon the dryness so many times of what we experience in this life and grateful for what Christ has done in our situation of life. Go with me to the Gospel of John this morning as we continue in this series together on Come and See and looking at what we find in a section that we we touched on last week, but I want to go back and look again at some things that are found in this section and looking predominantly at verses 29 through 34 this morning and thinking about some things that John the writer, the author here, says of John the witness. And I'll be honest with you, I'll get a little bit more relief in my own heart when we get past John, 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 John. Which John are we talking about? Uh, So uh, we'll do that here uh, in the next section, but uh, he will keep coming back up in these first few uh, chapters. And uh, so we'll have to try to keep things fixated in our mind as to which one we're referring to. Going back really to verse 24, uh, this whole section starts at verse 19. We spent some time last week talking about this section, the emphasis of the voice, who Jesus is uh, being foretold of, and who that person is, is John the witness or John the Baptist. And he talks about himself being that voice that comes out of the wilderness, the Isaiah passage that uh, he is quoting there. And But then picking up verse 24, he's having a conversation with some Pharisees, and they're asking him about the baptism that uh, he is doing. Why are you doing these things? If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why are you behaving this way? The, the water, this baptism is something that really is to be done in a more of a ceremonial way. This is supposed to be something that is really a, a more tied to a, a temple or a tabernacle experience, but you're out here in the wilderness and wait a minute, we're Jews. We don't, we're, we're not supposed to do it this way. And I kind of want to clarify, I misspoke last time I said that John was not a Levite, and really my heart behind that was is he was not behaving like these Levites who were coming to him. John's father was, in fact, a Levite, so he would have known all about these ceremonial laws and these prescriptions and everything that was tied to it. And yet there is something about his behavior, there's something that he's doing, and he makes it very plain. I am letting you know that there is one greater than me that's coming. And you need to be prepared for him. And then you come to this statement in verse 29, the next day. And this is an interesting phrase that comes up. You have it here again in verse 29. You have it in verse 35. Uh, you're going to find that he, he has these next day experiences. In fact, then you come to chapter 2 and verse 1. You're going to find that there are these three days. Of verse 43, uh, there is a next day. And so this is a, really a telling of something that happens within a week, a period of time. And so these three days really began to bring to light a lot of information about the person of Jesus Christ. So picking it up again in verse 29, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on 
behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then there's some interesting things that John the witness says here. I I did not recognize him. It's it's not like he was the obvious one. This is not something that I would have said that I fully grasped this, but he said this is something that has become plain to me, this, this sense of recognition, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And he, he talks about this ministry of this, the spirit upon himself and how the God has given to him this mission to prepare the way. And so in the process of not really recognizing who the Messiah is, he is being sent out, sent forward. And he's been doing this baptism as, a, as an evidence of a repentance of heart, this change of direction. And if you're truly repentant, you will come and you will dedicate this season of life, this opportunity to really model and demonstrate that you're ready to follow after God. And so there is this testimony that is given, and then he goes on to talk about how he has seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, remaining upon this one. And he says in verse 3, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, this, this commissioning that I have to baptize in water, has told me that upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So these next day passages, and as we're going to see, this section moves us right into an introduction of the first of the disciples that Jesus will have that are going to follow him that will happen later on here even in this section starting in really in verse 35. You're going to find that chapter 2 begins to bring more and more of the disciples. There's a challenge there. And so moving forward into the life of Christ, and this section is going to really, for us, as we read the rest of the Gospel of John, is going to introduce so many of the themes that John is going to unfold for us as we move through this book. And so my goal today is to help us understand this key phrase that John, the witness, shares with us, and we sort of glossed over last week. And I want to dwell on the statement that John, the witness, offers to those who are standing there when Jesus comes upon the scene. And as he says there in verse 29, behold the Lamb of God, or really the Lamb of the God, who takes away the sin of the world. So what is it about this? And so John, again, the witness, he is going to say this again in verse 35, but the author only records the first part of that statement, behold the Lamb of God. The idea of that word, behold, is the the indication of look. Take notice. This is important. Don't miss this. And this is where we are getting our opportunity, really, at the first of this book, to be challenged to come and to see. Take notice of him. Chapter 2 and verse 13, go over there for just a minute. Look at what he says in chapter 2 and verse 13. You'll find that John, the writer, he he gets into more of the story and he talks about the Passover the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is a, a first experience. John's gospel records some details. The other synoptic gospels don't. And it seems to indicate that, according to John's gospel, that Jesus visited Jerusalem at different periods of time, especially in this sense of being there for this Passover event. In chapter 3, go over to chapter 3, kind of looking ahead, and he says in verse 17, 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when we think back in this section that we're in here in chapter 1, what we find in this section of introduction here is we've already read through the prologue there of verses 1 through 18, now coming into this section, chapter 1, verses 19, down to really verse 34, and, and a little bit more, again, these, these dynamic breaks that are in this first chapter. What we're seeing is, is that really what John the author is doing is he is giving us really a foreshadowing. He's giving us indications of some major themes that he's going to be unfolding and unpacking throughout the rest of this book. He uses these statements that are in their grammar very parallel. The lamb of, really again, implying there this is a, a definite article, this idea of the God. And he talks about the sin of the world. Later in verse 34, he uses that phrase again, the son of the God. These emphatic statements, these qualitative statements, something about them, these components of lamb and sin and son are uniquely and distinctly coming from these entities, from God and from the world. And so you you see really a contrast starting to form within the book of John. There is the distinction of, of God and who he is and the world and who we are. And the relationship of, of how those two could possibly ever find something to bring them together. The Lamb. And so this uniqueness of what we begin to journey into the book of John with, and we're going to see the meaning of this statement coming to life all through this book And what I want to do this morning and starting this morning is to break down this declaration a little bit more to examine what really John the witness here reveals in just this bold statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him. Don't miss him. Take notice. So what do we see? Today I'm going to look at the second part first. And take some time this morning to focus on what I would call the world's condition. Thinking about what we find as John the writer here gives to us the words of John the witness as he declares to those that are willing to listen, I want you to take notice of the Lamb of God who does something, but who does he do it for? He does it for the world. And why does the world need attention? Because of the sin that's inside of it. The lamb who takes away something. And what does the lamb take away? The sin of the world. And as D.A. Carson put it, all human beings without distinction. This isn't John the witness saying that for all of you Gentiles that are standing here, the lamb has come. He's not saying it to a specific ethnic group or to a certain gender or to anything that would qualify them as distinct from each other. He puts us into the same category, Jew and barbarian, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, all of it being put together in the same categorical sphere. We are part of this world and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So therefore, it is not about the pecking order of a lineage. The whole world is in sin, and God has come to offer a remedy. What's interesting is that it's also a singular word that is used here. And the idea of this is that it's addressing the very root of all of our sin problem. The sin belongs to and identifies the world. And so the question is, then what is sin? What sin is this that he's referring to? What sin would be so characterized as being the thing that the world is known for? And for this, we've got to go back to the beginning. So journey with me to the very first book in your Bible, and that is the book of Genesis, and go with me to chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. And I think it's important for us to appreciate that the complexity of the beginning, even though we, in our Western way of thinking, we think of this book as the beginning of our Bible, and yes, it is, and so in this case, it's easy for us to find that, but really, this is the watershed effect for the rest of the Scriptures. Everything that happens here, everything that takes place in these first three chapters, really the first 12 chapters of our Bible, lay the foundation for everything else that we read in Scripture. So we come to Genesis chapter 3, and the first two chapters are a a, a sort of a a circular, it's not a linear telling, but there's a circular telling of events, and it describes those days, those six days of creation, seventh day of God's resting, not because he was weary, but he establishes a day of focus, a day of recognition, a day when things come to their end and we recognize everything that has been accomplished. And we enter into this relationship with God because God makes man. God creates us and he creates us unique from all the rest of creation. We talked about that back in chapter 1 again. He's talked about this already in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 of John. He talks about how this is the word and the word was there at the beginning. But then you get to chapter 3 and the wheels fall off. You come to chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it. And then she adds, and I I think this is the husband inclusion here. Don't even touch it. I think it was so impressed upon them. This is that one thing. This is that one area. This is that one tree. This is that one fruit. Don't eat it. I mean, I can almost hear me saying this, you know, don't even touch it. I mean, let's just leave it alone. But then you get to verse 4. And there's all these statements of doubt. And the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. That's a bold-faced lie. But it was something that pricked inside of the conscience of Adam and Eve, and especially in this case, Eve, doubt. Hmm. Can I, can I trust God? Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in some ways, that's not all untrue, verse 5. There was some sprinkling of truth in there with a whole lot of other not so true 
And then you get to verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, ate. She gave also to her husband with her. And this is when everything changed. And he ate. Up until all of this happens, there became a point of decision. And Adam and Eve stood at the threshold of a decision. And it moved from the point of a temptation to the point of a realized thought, moving out of the heart of innocence, out of an awareness that there is here before me a choice. And in that choice, there became then a decision made. And in that decision, an understanding of their estimation of God was put on the altar. And you come to verse 7 of what we find here, and he says, the eyes of them both were open. See, that was the part that the serpent told them that's true. Your eyes will be opened. But what did they discover? They discovered that everything about them now has become distorted. And that even in their understanding of each other, their looking upon each other has now become unclear to the point where they could only focus in on how they looked and how they appeared, not as clothed and adorned in the glory of God, but now they see themselves for what they are. They are but human. And in that moment, they began to do everything in their power to cover themselves because of shame. And that's exactly what sin does, is it brings shame. You see, Adam is the father of all mankind. And the failure of his existence is passed on to the next generation due to his sin. The curse that Adam brought into the world, and yes, we can say Eve, but really it becomes there because of his command to Adam. Adam, don't eat. Sin is technically a term that simply means to miss the mark, to be found guilty, to live inside of what we would describe as a failure. It is the mark of a standard unreached, and as a result, a consequence is determined. In the case of Adam and Eve, the consequence was death. Biblically, it means to be estranged from God. It is us as a created humanity, living independent of our creator, choosing to behave in defiance to who he is and to live contrary to how he behaves. Simply put, sin is existing in contradiction to the identity of God. For Adam and Eve, it was a choice that was born out of a condition of innocence. They did not possess a sin nature. But Adam committed his sin inside of an awareness and he even created imperfection, he still makes a choice. And sin is about a choice. It is about the freedom to choose, to choose my desires over God's desires. And Adam made a choice out of his own self-determination. You see, the devil didn't make him do it. God didn't make him do it. Eve didn't make him do it. Adam chose to defy God. 
And because of that choice, all of us as descendants of Adam were conceived with a nature that we see within ourselves and we live a life as if we are now independent of God. Lewis Perry Schaefer, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote this, he says, sin is a restless unwillingness on the part of the creature to abide in the sphere and limitation in which the creator, guided by infinite wisdom, has placed him. He goes on to say, it is a want of conformity to the character of God. It's something I don't want this. I don't desire this. I don't want to be identified with the character of God. I choose to live independent in the sphere of my own making. But the problem is, is that it's always within the boundaries of what we are capable of. And how did we become capable of even doing that? Is because God created us capable of that. In other words, Adam and Eve, and even us today, imagined that what is good is not all that there is. That there has to be more than what God has given to us. And in the words of the great philosopher Ariel of the Little Mermaid, I want more. Later on, Schaefer would write in his his systematic theology, he says, since sin is negative to the extent that it has no standards of its own, but it must derive its measurements from that which is positive or good. And since the holy character of God is the standard of that which is good, it follows that sin is as evil as it appears to be when viewed from the vantage point of the holiness of God. I love that last part. That sin is truly as evil as it appears to be when it is viewed from the vantage point of God. And when the writer of Isaiah excuse me, of Jeremiah, when he writes that our sins are as filthy rags, our attempts at righteousness are like those filthy rags. Everything that I'm trying to do that measures up to goodness is never, ever good enough because it's not like God. The understanding then of what I am as a sinner When understanding the world's condition, it is about a comparison to the holiness of God. And in sin, we find that the world that we as humanity are at odds with the very God that created us. And we as the world did not know him. And that was the condition to which then, back in John now, back to John chapter 1, that is the condition in which John the witness comes to his own people, comes to the world and declares that the world needs to understand that God is offering now something greater, something more perfect, more powerful, something that is truly sufficient to deal with the condition of our existence. We need the Lamb of God. So what does it mean, though, to be one that is found in sin? Because in sin, we find that the world and us, again, being at odds with this God, leads John as the gospel writer here to help us see as we move through this book how significant and important a relationship with God is through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And when he talks about this aspect of being the sinners that we are and the sinners that the the world is, he talks about it in contrast to the Lamb of God, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is he saying? Let me give you three things that he's basically saying here. First of all, it's this, that as a sinner, we are enemies of God. As a sinner in this lifetime, without redemption through Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about more next week, the understanding then of where we are situated as a people born of a woman, born under this curse, born with this sin nature, born in rebellion against God, we are enemies of God from day one. And it's not because God chose to make us his enemy. It's that we choose to defy the very character, the very identity. We don't want God being God. I feel like I do a better job than he does. And so we struggle with this. And so we stand in defiance to him. And thus we rebel against his standard of good And we become consumed with what God is not. We become more consumed with the evil that's in our life. We're sinners. This is how we were born. We are encased in a nature that only longs to sin. I like how some of the writers put it. We grow excited to sin. We want to imagine our existence as independent of any standard, and yet let someone do us evil, and we long for the standard of good. Let someone abuse a child. Let someone commit murder. Let someone rob and steal. Let someone cut us off in the traffic lane. And we long for a standard of righteousness, don't we? And yet that good is found in God. And our standard of mind and heart is rooted in a determination, a self-determination to choose anything or anyone other than God. I love the passage of Romans chapter 8, and as it reads in, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, and he begins in verse 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Still being in the condition of my sin, Christ dies. And he says that in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I mean, notice the the indications of what it means to be a sinner. Uh, Something had to die. I am under the wrath of God. And then he says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. My very existence, when I was born into this world, came in as in the partnership of those who stood as defiant enemies of God himself. But yet being still in that same condition, my God chose not to hold that against me. And that while I was still classified as sinner, arch enemy number one, he still died for me. And even though the wrath of God was ready to be poured out, God in his magnificent willingness, in his own self-determination, made a choice. And even though I deserved the punishment that was meted out against me, just wait, laying in wait 
even though I stood as opposed and as an enemy, God was willing to reconcile the debt, remove all of what I had against me, and make me his own. Behold the Lamb of God. But this is where I stood. And this is what the entire world is. And maybe perhaps even this morning, that's who you still are. You see, God directs and you look for an alternative. You behave as though God has no authority in your actions and in your choices. Are you an enemy of God or are you humbled by the reality of who God is and the understanding of your need for his forgiveness to restore a relationship with him? Because we're not only born as enemies of God in our sin, but that also establishes the consequences for the evil that's born out in our hearts. And as we understand what it really means to be a sinner, not only does it establish that we're enemies, but second of all, we understand that sinners are separated from them from life. And as a sinner, I only could understand death. I only could deserve condemnation. I only could understand separation from God. And that's exactly what chapter 1, when he talks about here, as he talks about this life that is in him, as he says in verse 4 of 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. As the enemy of God, as a sinner in this world, I stood as opposed to life as ever I would be. In Genesis 3.19, where he writes, he says, By the sweat of your face you will eat the bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But we miss the reality of the curse in Scripture, because death speaks of separation. We get so enamored, we get so focused on this physical death. A point in which we can find ourselves out of a relationship with God to never having it restored. God will place those who reject him into a place that he had prepared a long time ago for Satan and for the, those angels that went with him in rebellion against God. And God prepared a place, a special place for them. But because humanity also went the same way, God says that he has to expand that because it's now the place where as human beings who reject their creator, their souls that are eternal souls are going to have to dwell for all of eternity. I mean, this wrath of God, this this justice of God. And that's the eternal death. Eternal separation from the hope that's found in a restored relationship with God. I'm begging of you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, recognize that you don't have to go there. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul reminded them of what they had been before discovering the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And he writes to them, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that serpent, Satan, who he's spoken of there in Genesis 3, 
of the spirit that is now working inside of the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to say in verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is the sin's consequence. This is the world's condition to be separated from life. But not only are we the enemies of God and separated from life, but notice with me third that we understand that as sinners we are wandering in the darkness. And that's exactly what John 1 reminds us of. He was the light. And why would the light be necessary? Because he comes to those that are in the darkness. And as a sinner, as the one living in this world, as someone that is encapsulated by what this world system is like, he reminds us of the hope that only the light can bring. This is the blindness of every human heart, as Paul would later write about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You know, pause here for just a minute. Why does Caitlin go to Kenya? Why is David going to India? Why are the dicks going to Hungary? But why do I have a neighbor in my backyard? And why do I live on a street? And what about the coworker that I live and rub shoulders with each and every day? If the gospel is veiled, if it is hidden, it's hidden to those who are dying because of their sins. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. This is not about Adam Love. This is not about Deacon so-and-so. This isn't about Paul the Apostle or John the Apostle or John the Witness. This is not about us because that would just be more humanity trying to fix other humans. We can't do it. It's not our glory. It's for Jesus' sake. We see ourselves as the bondservants for Christ's sake. And he says in verse 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, this is why it is so important, church, to be the church. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the face of of Christ that shines into the darkness that brings Christ with us wherever we go because the Lamb of God has taken away our sin and that's exactly what your neighbor needs that's exactly what your unsaved children need that's exactly what your grandchildren need that's exactly what every person on your street needs that's who needs it in Kenya and who needs it in Hungary who needs it in India who needs it around the world And that's why we have a church. It's because of what Christ has done to us as sinners. Because we're no longer in the darkness. The struggle of the unbelieving mind is that he does not want to believe that he's accountable to God. 
Because to live in such a way then makes him or her only accountable to their own standard of what they deem is right or wrong. And this is where we can tend to come up with our own truth and we can live by our own standards and we can, again, read what Schaefer said there again, since sin is the negative to that extent that it has no standards of its own but must derive its measurements from that which is positive or good. And since the holy character of God is the standard of that which is good, it follows that sin is as evil as it appears to be when viewed from the vantage point of the holiness of God. When you begin to compare your life to the holiness of God, you become confronted with an Isaiah 6 reaction. Oh, I am unworthy. And we will never compare. You'll never be as good as the goodness of God until we are with him for all of eternity. And we finally have then this ability to be free from all of the sin taint that's upon us. And we stand with him for all of eternity. I'm grateful for what he gives to us in this lifetime. I'm grateful for the forgiveness that I can have, the awareness of him, the fact that I now no longer have to stand as an enemy. I no longer have to stand in the condemnation of my actions, that I have a life that's promised to me. And even though I might suffer the consequences of this physical death, I will stand forever with him for all of eternity. And to know that this goodness that he has given to me exceeds everything that I could attempt because I rest in his goodness and who he is. You see, unless your goodness exceeds the righteousness of the most righteous person, most religious person you know, and unless your goodness is as good as God, you will never be able to live eternally secure without condemnation. This is the world's condition. That as sinners, we wander in the darkness. As sinners, you wander, you're bound in a life that has only this expanse and there isn't anything promised after this except condemnation and separation from him. Because we stand as enemies of God. We're born blind without the ability to see, to see a way out or even a desire to have a way out of our stumbling around apart from God. So what will the world do? And the thing is that God has been declaring hope to this world long before he ever sent Jesus Christ to the planet. A promise was given all the way back there to Adam, back at the very dawn of all of this that took place. Right at the point as soon as the creep of death began to crawl up into the existence of humanity. Back in Genesis 3 again in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you from all cattle. And more than every beast of the field and on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then he turns to humanity and he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. A very much a depiction of what Jesus Christ would suffer for us. And as soon as sin entered, God stood with his creation. I want you to notice that. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, God did not abandon them and isolate them. He came and he met them where they were at. As soon as rebellion turned man's mind away from God, God came to stand in the place of shame and to remind them that he still cares and he still loves them. 
and he's been doing that for humanity for millennia. That he comes to the place of our shame. He comes to the place of our rebellion. He stands there because he comes to where we are because we can't come to where he is. And so God promised mankind that deliverer who would come. And that's what John comes. Behold the Lamb of God. You see, man chose. And God also chose to not abandon his special creation. But that is the world's condition. And you may be here today and you are still in sin. You've never beheld the absolute good of God. You've continued to exist in such a way that says that you are a self-determined one. And you believe you choose your destiny and that you choose your course of life. Yes, but God is also aware of what comes after this life. See, God is aware that the choices you make are done out of a mindset that is devoid of any true standard of right. And thus, your good is only as good as you are and never as good as he is. You are still not seeing that your very soul depends on understanding that he alone is God and that you are not. And so death will come. Eternity will come. What then? Do you know life? Do you know that you can see value and even purpose in this life as well as in the one that is going to come even after this physical life is done? Do you know that your sin is forgiven, your rebellion against God, that God has a solution for your sin? And for that solution, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and not just your sin but the sin of the world and so next time we'll delve into that first part of the statement as the solution for what we need in our lives but if you're here this morning and you need to deal with sin don't wait till next Sunday come talk to somebody come talk to me And let's deal honestly with your relationship with the God of the universe who steps into our existence and steps into your home, steps into your sphere of life and identifies himself as God. What is your condition this morning? Is it the same as the rest of the world? Or is it because you know the Lamb of God? then let his glory shine and let's make sure that we are beacons of hope to a lot of other people in this world who need to hear and see this lamb. Let's stand together for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts to understand our relationship with you and that our relationship with you is fixed not because of my religiosity or because I came to church this morning, but because I have a fixed relationship with the God of the universe who has promised to me eternal life, and this life is in him, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do what is necessary to fix
fix the human condition of every person that's here that is separated from you still, and they are still in their darkness, still without life. They're still enemies of you. Lord, I pray that you would help them in all humility to see their need for you as God. Speak as only your spirit can and as only your word can. Lord, I pray that you would help us that are free in Christ to truly walk in the joy of our relationship with you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
just before we leave, I got a note here that uh, if you own a gray Suburban with a Georgia license plate, starts with DWN, where's Paul? He's back right there. The gentleman here, if you would, meet him in the center of the aisle. He's got some information for you about your vehicle. And uh, Lord, I need you. That uh, might be the case right there. Um, we thought we'd wait till this point, all right? In just a minute, we're going to be dismissed. We're going to go back. There's some fellowship time that's available in our fellowship hall. If you're visitors with us, please stay. Uh, there's coffee, there's teas, there's, there's even like, donuts and snacks and things like this. And it's, it's a great time just to interact. And also, get a little something to help you get yourself ready for lunch. But uh, it's also a good time to meet and interact with others. And I hope that you'll take a moment to do that. And then around the 11 o'clock hour, we go into some different classes and and that uh, screen there is showing you where we have different electives and classes meeting throughout uh, this facility. And uh, there's also information about that in our foyer. And this gentleman right here is more than happy to answer any other questions you may have. And so I hope that uh, you'll stay and enjoy that time with us. God bless you. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.